Now we are going to talk about what actually could be happening in the brain in the key descriptors that distinguish those different jhana states from each other. And the point of this is partly, isn't it cool? We admit it. It is pretty cool. <laughs> but the larger point is to help yourself as you, particularly in deep retreats, you know, may that happen, may all this happen for you. Um, uh, and you're in these deep states by having some sense of the neurological territory of this, it aids conviction, but it also gives you the potential of some nimbleness and adeptness of finding your way into these states on your own, on retreat. So, concentration in neuroscience. Um, first off, the other way I want you to hold this, what, what I'm about to lead you through, is in the context of the meditation we did at the end of the morning, which starts out as steadied, intern steadied internally, quiet, singleness, concentrated, insight. So we already did this in the Dharma state. Now I want you to hear it from a neuroscience perspective. These are real states of experience. They therefore correlate with real brain states. There's an EEG study that showed that the brain state in meditative concentration differs from the state in the state of the brain in the state of meditative mindfulness. So the fine qualities of some of the meditative technologies of going for mindfulness or going for concentration have definite corollaries in what we see in electrical activity in the brain. The slides we showed you of the lightening up of the anterior cingulate cortex is a, somebody, is, is a state of somebody in deep concentrative absorption. So our question, of course, is what's, what's going on in the brain when it's in one of these jhana states? And we don't mean this in a reductionistic sense. I'm not, whatever the neurologic machinery of the jhanas may be, a lot more things are simultaneously happening in the brain. There may be transcendental factors at work. That's beyond certainly my ability to ask and or answer. Uh, but we're talking about what we think are some of the neurologic correlates of some aspects of these mystical states. And we're not going to reduce these mystical experiences to what's happening in the brain. So that caveat will dive off into the pool, bringing our kayak along. Maybe not a raft, but certainly a kayak. Um, so the first jhana, accompanied by applied and sustained thought with rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. We talked about to apply att attention and sustain attention. Applied thought, the prefrontal cortex based on a picture of what it wants to accomplish, which is given to it in dialogue from the parietal lobes, and you can imagine this kind of a frontwards, backwards dance going on, makes the decision to apply thought to an object. To sustain the thought, the anterior cingulate cortex, that, that location right in the middle between the two hemispheres, in a funny way, kind of where you think the third eye is going to be, uh, is active as well. Rapture and pleasure. Rapture. Rapture has this very luscious somatic quality. So when I hear rapture in the, in the Pali canon, I start thinking dopamine. <laughs> the dopamine nuclei that do this are in the ventral tegmentum, which is a part of the, uh, the brain stem. And it shoots up into 
nucleus accumbens, which is up higher in the brainstem, and the prefrontal lobes. This is that uh, that uh, body luscious, or orgiastic kind of quality to rapture. Pleasure. Pleasure is based on, we think, on norepinephrine. Uh, from the locus ceruleus into the cingulate cortex. That anterior cingulate runs on a norepinephrine reward system. When it says, yes, we have, we have optimized the function, you are really focusing on the breath, and you have just the right amount of frontal lobe resources to sustain you on the breath, yes, it gets a punch of norepinephrine uh, from the locus ceruleus into the anterior cingulate. The, the corollary of that is the brightening of the mind. So if you think in the, vis- in the verbal metaphor of what it is like to have a bright, aware mind, that's a norepinephrine pulse. Dopamine is also obviously involved. Now, of, born of seclusion, withdrawal from the internal clamor. You've, you've invoked a sense of safety, the absence of threat. The amygdala, because of your intentions and the way you've set up your meditative practice, has been quieted down. The sympathetic fight-flight-fright system has been, uh, has been relaxed. You've got some oxytocin going uh, in the sense of there's some comfort, there's some sense of enclosure, there's some sense of sort of a self-hugging going on. Second jhana. Self-confidence and singleness of mind without applied and sustained thought with rapture and pleasure born of concentration. Applied and sustained thought fade away. The dance between the prefrontal cortex and the parietal lobes quiets down. Not needed to focus the attention anymore. Perhaps the entire frontal and left temporal lobes start to get quiet. No more conceptualization. No more language. The the anterior cingulate begins to freewheel on attention itself. Attention is starting to be paid to attention. Look at me attending. Here we go. Ding, 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 ding. Basal ganglia, the thalamus, the parietal cortex, that intensity of being aware of awareness is beginning to feed them with the sense that enough is going on that they don't need to go out and seek new stimuli. Rapture and pleasure are still hanging in there. Dopamine and norepinephrine keep on pulsing. But now, that's running on the bliss of absorption, of concentration, all on its own. Third jhana. With the fading away as well of rapture, he, she abides in equanimity. With the disappearance of joy and grief, still feeling pleasure with the body. Third jhana. With the... Uh, the absence of applied and sustained thought, the prefrontal and frontal lobes get to be fairly quiet. Rapture, the dopamine reward system, begins to quiet down. Attention is increasingly the object of attention. Equanimity, the lack of reaction to our reactions. The amygdala is starting to get very, very quiet. Some of the other emotional reactive centers are starting to go offline. Not needed. And there's this very tranquil immersion in this frontal lobe, what we've titled the circuit breaker. This sort of, um, this inner sense of things are going okay, I'm, apl- I'm 
I'm running exactly where I need to be. Outside stimuli don't need to be attended to. Pleasure. Anterior cingulate cortex and the norepinephrine circuit are just cruising along on this recursive positive feedback loop. Om Mani Padme Hum. Here we go. And in the body, remember in the third jhana, still feeling pleasure with the body, basal ganglia, thalamus, parietal cortex still activated. In the fourth jhana, abandoning of pleasure in pain with purity of mindfulness due to equanimity. So, pleasure and pain are abandoned. The amygdala, the basal ganglia, thalamus, hippocampus turned way down. They're not off, but they're just down. Stuff just isn't being labeled anymore. It comes and then it goes away. Contact, feeling, craving. Contact, maybe, maybe feeling, no craving. You've broken that chain. And that dopamine, that somatic orgiastic uh, uh, reward system, down just a mere tri- trickle, brain still running on norepinephrine. And the purity of mindfulness due to equanimity, that implies that there's this profound disengagement from these emotional reactive circuits. And the extreme brightness of mind and the steadiness of bare awareness suggests that in this state, the fourth jhana, the anterior cingulate cortex and the locus ceruleus norepinephrine system are basically running free. That's my best take on it. Nobody knows for sure. But the, the, the MRI scan that we showed you, uh, which I think is of Matthew Picard, in a meditative state on shamatha, looks a lot like what I just told you. Anterior cingulate and locus ceruleus running free, everything else turned off to just kind of put on idle. And the beauty of this, for me, is one, it's attainable, it's replicable. And the thing we didn't say about that slide set is that that study was done not just on Tibetan monastics with 70,000 Zafu hours, lifetime. It was also done on Christian contemplative nuns in union with the vision of Christ on the cross. And what that says is that this state is independent of religious tradition. And that's what I want you to go home with. Questions or comments? Take the mic, please. Anybody have the mic floating around? We've got two of them. Um, this uh, construct that you just finished describing since I don't think that we can actually do instantaneous biochemical analyses on a live brain so it's what you just told us is basically a a theoretical hypothesis of your own or the science in general since we really 
don't know if you said for sure that any of this is going on. Well, I'm, I'm presenting, yes, the, the answer is uh, it's a hypothetical. The studies on the anterior cingulate and the frontal lobes, the locus ceruleus and the ventral tegmentum, are based uh, on the work of Jonathan Cohen at Princeton, uh, who's done the major piece of work on the, on the neurobiology of focused attention. Um, I'd commend that work to you. It's jonathancohenprinceton.edu. <coughs> And you can download several thousand <laughs> pages of articles. Uh, that's hard science. What I said about the relationship between frontal lobe attention, frontal lobe parietal lobe, uh, ventral tegmentum and dopamine, and the anterior cingulate and the locus ceruleus norepinephrine cir- circuit, with the anterior cingulate monitoring the frontal parietal uh, circuitry, that appears to be a mammalian biologic reality. Because uh, it's, it's present in rats, it's present in cats, it's present in primates to the, the extent that we study it. And I think, I, it, and going from that to the PET scan of somebody in the deep state of meditative practice and seeing the, the overlap, I don't think it's that far off. If I could add, though, um, just a point of clarity. Uh, we consider this explanation really plausible. My gut feeling is that most of it will be, have, will, um, be found to be accurate. Some parts, we don't know which, will be found to be really inaccurate. And oh, there will yeah. be a lot of little <laughs> details around the edges that will add to the picture. One. Two, it's speculative because truly, to our knowledge at least, I don't, we don't know of anybody who's been in a jhana state uh, who's been wired up. And so um, the scans you saw are suggestive of very, very experienced practitioners who can go into deep states. But most people who work in this territory of jhanas uh, agree that it's not something that most people can just click right into. Uh, so okay. that's a disclaimer. and. Um, the other thing I should say just as a technical point that you may bump into it's kind of important basically the jhana states are discussed in two different kinds of ways some people discuss them in a way that's very close to the language in the Pali canon that we put on the, the screen here in which there's still an awareness of other things going on there's deep absorption but it's not like the person has lost touch with reality other people, particularly Pa Ok Sayadaw or some other um, Southeast Asian masters, and you'll also see this in other traditions as well, such as the Tibetan tradition, talk about deep states of absorption where the, pers- where the person loses all sense of the ordinary. And it's okay either way. Um, in the, just, just sort of know that. But definitely, nobody in one of those deep, lost touch with complete reality states, to our knowledge at least, has been wired up in Western technology. Right, those are the immaterial jhanas, which are five, six, seven, and eight um, on that path. Yeah, but actually also some people will talk about the entry into the jhana right. is losing contact with ordinary reality. So just kind of know that. You'll bump into this term in two different, in two different ways. Okay, other people? Other comments? 
And I, I would like to actually just say one thing. You're next, though, which is that the way to relate to this stuff, which can sound very far out, is to actually ask yourself, why not me? In other words, that's how the Buddha laid it out. He didn't say the Noble Sevenfold Path. It's the Noble Eightfold Path. This is, the first four jhanas are the are right concentration. So he wouldn't have laid it out there if the plan wasn't that men and women, monastics and householders, all have equal access to these states. Correct. So, okay, yeah. So uh, I had a couple of short questions to follow. Uh, is your mic on? Okay. How about now? Oh, much, much better. Yeah. So my sense in anecdotally is that there's a way to go through these jhanas at these different levels, and you could go through these steps but have more thought still active in them or varying degrees of mm-hmm. uh, depth of them. And so there's a sense then this biological process can take, seems to naturally want to take place in many people. Uh, at different levels. Right. Okay. And then is there, you know, maybe this is just made up anecdotally for me too, but in listening to people talk about who seems to be interested in this and not, there seems to me a little sense that people maybe who have a stronger emotional component seem a little more, you know, with ease at this practice and maybe people who are a little more, I don't know, Lower state, you know, more uh, lower state emotions, or more—I don't know what the right words are here—but there actually could be some wet, tra- wet path and dry path, the path of intellectual insight and the path. Well, of not necessarily the intellectual, but also whether your emotions tend to move a lot up and down, or whether they tend to be a little more measured. Th- right. That the more your emotions are stronger, that it actually you could have more affinity for this type of experience. Uh, just yeah. curious if that yeah. makes any sense. Or yeah, it does make sense. And I th- I, again, it's going to be different paths, different practitioners, different cognitive and emotional styles will naturally go toward different practices in terms of attaining the final goal. And then maybe one last point I think that's implicit in this, but there is a biological idea that the the first jhana actually then at some point triggers the second one to take place, and then these conditions, so then that means with that second one, then it says, okay, now we can lower that. And that's how they're laid out and taught, although my experience from looking, from talking to people who've gone on, let's say with Lee Brasington, who've done you know, really solid jhana retreats for a long period of time, which I have not done in all honesty, uh, is that you can actually, you can bounce in and out of, you can go from one state to another, you know, four, two, one, three, two, four, you know, it's not that they go, it's not, so that you're, it's not a rigid sequence. So these are descriptions of each type, uh-huh. not that the first one conditions the right, second. But they are, they, they are laid out by the Buddha uh, they're usually laid out all eight. Um, and you'll find that repeated over and over and over again in the Majjhima and Nikaya. And they're, they're laid out in that sequence because each one is a deeper state of absorption. Right. And then the biology you lay out here, does that, the biology itself, imply cause and effect? To That's the what states? I think is going on. Okay. We don't think of it as causal. Um, in other words, it's not that um, hypothetically because you fatigue on applied and sustained attention in the first jhana, 
that that then causes those functions to fall away. Um, and you know, the truth is, we are really out here. And so to get into <laughs> well, any kind of detail about this castle we've spun in the air out of sugar, right. uh, we're just not going to go there. <laughs> you right. know, right. Uh, just the audacity of doing this is making my skin crawl. That's okay. Oh. <laughs> okay. I'm much right. more the rebel. I'm much more the rebel than he is. I'm really no, kind of no, having no, a good no, time over good. here. It's good. I like you're doing uh, this much better. But I, th- I, I think Rick's, beyond it. Rick's point's absolutely absolutely true. What I'm saying here is not that. You know, I actually said that at the beginning. This is no different than saying that this is Broca's area and this is where I'm talking from. What what I'm what I'm speaking to is that from my end, it appears that present state of neuroscience is beginning and I forgot to mention Richie Davidson in, in Wisconsin who's doing amazing work and actually there's some work being done over here at Stanford and some done at UCLA in this area uh, using fMRI data but the, what we're beginning to see is that stuff that is written about 2500 years ago that people could it romanticize and say oh that's just religious fluff gets grounded and wait a minute, you can't walk away from the fact that somebody who says he's in this state has a PET scan or an MRI scan that looks like this. And that when you get the next guy who also has, has practiced and says he's in that state, and you get his MRI scan and PET scan, it looks like that. And his looks like that. And this other one looks like that. Well, guess what? Something's going on here. That's the neuroanatomy of that experience. Now, beyond that, what you do with that is a whole other different thing. Uh, according to a John teacher, I don't want to mention his name, but you can figure it out. He said that he's found from his experience that people have used psychedelics in the 60s entered the jhanas easily. Uh-huh. Lysergic acid diethylamide is a serotonin analog. There is a reticular nucleus. It's a nucleus like a net of neurons that encases the thalamus in the center of the brain. The thalamus is the big relay station that takes sensation from the body and presents it to cortex. It's the dance between thalamus and cortex that generates the alpha rhythm. The nucleus reticularis thalami, which is a serotonin-rich nucleus, it's run by oven for serotonin, gates what leaves the thalamus and goes to cortex. So you take that and you take LSD which screws up your serotonin system. Here you are with synesthesia. Smells have colors, shapes have tastes. Here we go, and and, and this kind of thing happens. So there's there's so one of the things that I didn't even weave into this because I stayed pretty much in dopamine and norepinephrine based on the concentration practice literature. We haven't even woven serotonin into this one. So that's yeah, that's a, that's a neat piece. I say two things. One. Um, I really do encourage you, uh, before you go, to get on our email list, just a reminder to that, because we, we're, one thing that Rick and I are doing, as you can kind of see it, is we sort of look for the essence and then integrate and then apply this whole stuff out there. We're not doing bench research ourselves, but we are huge sifters. I don't know why I think of a big whale, you know, soaking plankton <laughs> through. We like. <laughs> I try not to take that personally. You know? <laughs> 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 
Anyway, so that's what it was. It really encouraged that. When we start too, singing baby you know, that, here. I have done some research, and, you know, the psychologist to me thinks, well, gee, think of the selection of people who did psychedelics in the first place. Maybe those people were more prone to the kind of people who can go into deep meditative states. You come up with, uh, you come up with Ram Dass, so you first cut. Okay, other people. And particularly, again, how does this apply to your practice? That's what we got interested in here. What will help your mind be steadier so it leads more to the kind of liberating insights that change your life? There are other concentration practices that people engage in besides sitting on a zafu, mm-hmm. like music, being a musician or right. extreme rock climbing. So what are the, the similarities between the brain in meditation, concentration meditation, and a musician or some other concentration a lo- practice? A lot of that is not known. But there have been studies on mantra meditation uh, you, with, with repetitive mantras used to obtain uh, the same kinds of states of concentrative absorption. The same picture of the frontal lobes and the anterior cingulate lit up, parietal lobes quiet, occipital lobes quiet. The only difference between the mantra meditation and the, uh, and the shamatha practice, just meditating on pure emptiness, is that there's this little piece of cortex over here between Wernicke's area and Boca's area that's kind of going pakata, 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 pakata as it does the mantra. Take that out, it's the same brain. So I bet that there are corollaries between these various different practices when you get to this final end state that, that are quite parallel. You know, but, but the brains will look different on PET scan because the mantra practice is going to have this, this ongoing. A couple of things on that. Um, let's see. Uh, first, um, I think you're completely right that there are many things, there are many ways to develop mm-hmm. concentration. Right. Um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with heart math. It's one of the methods we talk about. It's in the method section. It has to do with uh, training the beat-to-beat variability of the heart. Um, I had a client who was very, very anxious. And I thought, boy, this guy is really going to benefit from heart math training. So I got the computer, got the system, hook him up to the cuff, you know. And to my amazement and envy, he was able to just go and change the system so that he could really maintain that kind of sweet spot of beat-to-beat variability. I, th- I thought to myself, how in the world do you do this? It turned out this guy is a competitive match golfer. He has incredible mind-body training and control. He has learned to concentrate. Because obviously you change that. I don't golf because it's so frustrating. You change that head slightly, you know, suddenly the ball is very, very far away. So um, there are other ways to concentrate. The second thing, though, is that one of the nice things about developing concentration on objects that are not very stimulating, I think music, art, rock climbing, very stimulating. But to develop concentration, even a mantra is fairly stimulating. But to really concentrate on something as sort of subtle and not much going on as the breath, boy, that really teaches steadiness of mind. So. Okay. Yeah, you. Please. Well, my, my thoughts... My thoughts listening to that, that discussion, is that I've heard it said that, um, you know, you can have shamatha, you can have concentration practice watching TV, but there's not much purifying mindfulness to that. 
So, I mean, just talking talking uh, in this sort of um, neurobiological modality, I would imagine sort of playing PlayStation really intently would have certain aspects of the neurobiology, if we could get in there and look at it, that would be similar to, to um, sort of being very aware of the breath. And then other aspects would not be happening. You know, there'd be, you know, uh, some addictive aspects of the brain that would be lit up that would not be there with... with um, Dismembering people on the TV screen is not going to keep my amygdala quiet. So. <laughs> yeah. But you would get into a pretty... I mean, people do get into a concentrated state where they don't know someone walking into the room, for oh, example. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I, I, my guess is that there's some similarities and then these vast differences. Right. I think that's true. I, I think what he's got, gotten at, though, is a very important point, which is, and it's controversial, too, in a way, which is, to what extent is liberating insight available in the deepest states of absorption? Hmm. And that's used as an argument against seeking right concentration. Okay. And I've, I've heard people talk about it differently. I think it is said that in these states of absorption, that have um, very, in which you really have lost awareness of the outer world. Okay? In that sense, in that state, it is said that the mind is so still, it's really hard for it to be insightful. Okay? That's one. Two, on the other hand, the more ordinary state of deep concentration, either an excess concentration, which is sort of the waiting room, the anteroom prior to the first jhana called access concentration, where the five jhana factors are powerful, but you haven't just <coughs> tipped over to where you really do have a fish at the end of the line. Okay? Uh, in that state, it's still p- very possible to have insight that's quite profound. And the mind is so slowed down and so quiet and clear that you really can see the space between the tiles of the mosaic. And they start losing their kind of uh, inherency for you and their sense of compulsion about them. Right. Also, it is said, there's this wonderful metaphor, you may have read it in Buddha Dharma recently, one of the recent issues, this, an Asian uh, uh, teacher talked about it, that it is said traditionally that we find ourselves in the middle of a jungle of mind, full of greed, hatred, and delusion, and lots of suffering. Good news number one, we don't have to cut down the whole jungle. We just have to cut a path through it. A path through it to liberation. And then second, what do we use to cut through? We use a machete whose blade is sharp through vipassana, through insight, but the muscle that wields that machete is concentration. And that's, I think, a very nice way to put it. It's not either or. It's, not, it's both. They both work together. And at any moment in time, you can kind of feel into what would help you to cultivate more. Thanks. Yeah, Tony. I'm curious about um, this fictional character, this uh, self, and uh, because what we're looking at are all the causes and conditions in the in the brain that correlate with all these mental states, um, and I'm wondering if there is a. Uh, I mean, you say that there's no no locus that is the self, but if there are. Um, recognizable patterns or if the self is totally invisible in this neurobiological realm or whether it shows up as a condition. Wolf's in uh, the Mind and Life Conference in Washington, D.C. about two years ago, 
Wolf Singer from uh, Germany presented some EEG data on coherence and, and frequency analysis. Uh, and basically, what he showed was that there wasn't any place on EEG localization where when, you, when the subject was asked to make a decision, you know, that things showed up. And there has been recently an article uh, that looked at fMRI data and that when um, the uh, when the when the pay, when the subjects were asked to, to do selfing tasks that involved the I think about I doing it or this is mine, there isn't a single spot that lights up in the brain. There's a multiplicity of spots. You can either say, well, there's no self, but that's actually probably not true. What I think the self is, it's kind of a it's a kind of a, a useful working hypothesis for getting this thing to walk around and to do stuff. And it is it is a property which is emergent out of the nervous system. It's like, like an epiphenomenon. Um, the, 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 the sum is truly greater than the parts. You know, the, the, the function of the whole is truly greater than, than the sum of the parts. The interesting thing is that the Buddha pointed to that. He did not teach not-self. He did not teach self. He said, it's both. There's no self and there's no not-self. And, that, it's in, in, and so within our, within our tradition is essentially the same statement that it is that it is a property of th- it is a property of the brain, perhaps as a whole, but there is no place where where this happens that you could point to. There's no little man in there, despite setting up the the, the little you know watchdog to swat away nasty sensations we don't pay attention to. Uh, there's no little man in there that's doing that. So the issue of free will or not free will is really one of those questions that's posed incorrectly. Ooh, okay. (laughs) Uh, I'll take a quick riff at it. Free will or not free will? Um, You know know what I mean by that? By posed incorrectly. It's, you know, where did the the fire go? I mean, it's... Yeah, it it is in a sense posed incorrectly. Um, You do have... How I, t- how I take that is that the causes and conditions that have, less, that have led to this moment, my genetic inheritance, my, the experience of my life, uh, are absolutely deterministic. No, they exist. They are what they are. The next hundred milliseconds is up to me. And, and I don't know. <laughs> it's that emergent thing. Yeah. Part, part of what, part of, you know, that's, the, that's the piece that's interesting. We, we talk about you know, the genetics somehow um, ties us down and locks us in and our behavior frees us. It's actually the reverse. You cannot change your past behavior. That stuff was laid down. You know, I hit Rick in the shoulder. I can't take that back. That contact happened. That is absolutely trapped in time. What he and I choose to do about that is, is, to some extent, freedom. And some of that has to do with our genetic uh, abilities to process that and to act in the next hundred milliseconds in skillful means. 
Some of, some of our past experience has led us to contemplate skillful means to deal with trauma and aggression. Follow me? Okay. But I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of the, 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 the kind of uh, study that I, I read about in the New York Times recently that Benjamin Lippett did in the 80s where he, he measured the difference between the time the impulse to act occurs and the awareness that you've decided to act that you then go and, you know, say, well, that was my decision, even though it happened before you even knew it was going on. Yeah. yeah. What you are in control of is the set with which stimuli arise. I think that's, for me, that's a really fundamental underpinning in the Buddhist teaching. I'm in control of my intentions. I'm in control of taking on right view. I'm in control of taking in the, the, the experience of the next few moments in such a way as I can act in a way to reduce the suffering inherent in the situation and to attain liberation. That, that, is, that is the stance I can take. My dis, you know, and so I have to do that literally a priori. It has to be part of my worldview going into the moment for me to be skillful within the moment. But I do have the choice of doing that or not. Oh, yeah. The Buddha was also causal and conditioned. I mean, old age sickness, death, and the mendicant only make sense uh, as a tremendous revelatory experience if you have come from a completely blissful, you know, every, all of your needs have been taken care of exper experience over the first 25 years of your life. And you go out with your charioteer and you see that all of that is coming to an end when you have never been allowed to have a bad experience or an unmet need in your existence and you meet that you're going to die, you're going to get sick, and you're going to get old, and then who's this guy with the robes? Yeah. I think one of the points here too is that um, it's an error to conflate self with awareness. Hmm. In other words, most of the architecture of the brain, most of what's going on in my brain and your brain is forever outside of awareness. We will never, we will never be aware of it. It's happening too quickly or it's happening at too finely grained a, a level. We'll never be aware of it. That does not mean that there's no, um, there are no wholesome intentions, there are no memories, it just means that they're mostly out of awareness. And so, to me, it kind of doesn't matter that the intention to push the button, anytime you want, you get to push the button. Okay? It doesn't matter that the person's awareness of their intention to push the button lagged about half a second behind the true neurological activation of the push button sequence. To me, that's all still initiated by an actor. And the point of all that, more than anything, and again, it's easy to just philosophize about this. The whole question is, what's fruitful for you in your practice? Right. Now, the point about all that is to really honor the cultivation, the tending of our own gardens. You know, the cultivation of positive qualities in our minds and the slow uprooting of unwholesome qualities in our minds. You know, those are the, those are the, the seeds, good and bad, deep in the garden, if you will. And that, those are the ones that really have the greatest influence on our lives, not so much what we think consciously moment to moment to moment.
Yeah, cultivating our garden. There you go. That's right. So we want to talk now about insight and kind of uh, be on the glide path to the end of uh, this uh, workshop. And so, there we go. So as we were talking earlier, concentration, uh, it is said in in the Dharma, is the proximate cause of wisdom. That goes to what we were talking about earlier, that concentration is that muscular kind of uh, energy that helps us see things deeply and clearly. Um, Great. So the question is, what happens in the brain when you have some kind of a liberating insight? I should also add that the other proximate cause of wisdom is virtue. Virtue, again, isn't necessarily that brought over to the West when Buddhism came here because it's kind of boring and it seems all too easily incorporated into a right-wing view. So I think we've tossed the baby out with that bathwater to some extent in Buddhist circles. But sila, virtue, restraint, is really, really central. To, it's hard uh, to attain enlightenment when you've been carving up Iraqis all day. Well, there you go. So... Um, so think about that, you know, in your own practice again. Okay. It gives it a kind of steel. In other words, concentration and virtue give um, liberating insight a kind of solidity to them. Okay. So the first thing that happens, though, we realize something in the undoing of ignorance. So it's interesting to study what is ignorance. The problem with ignorance, to quote Rick's favorite um, statesman, Donald Rumsfeld, <laughs> is, is that... You know, there is right. What is it? He said, there are there are, there are there are things we know. There are things we don't know. There are unknowns that we know we don't know, and there are unknowns that we don't know we don't know. Now, that's actually deeply true. The problem is he used it. Not so. The devil can quote Dharma for his own purposes. No. Uh, the unknown unknown, that's what really gets us. When we're ignorant of our own ignorance, in other words. And very often what will happen is the brain will form a belief or a view and then it will forget, in a sense, that it made it up in the first place. Okay? And then we start to believing it, start to believe it. And so one of the things that um, happens when we uh, have liberating insight is we, we become knowledgeable of our ignorance. We know the unknown that we didn't know we didn't know. All right. And Rick's going to talk a little bit about that in terms of what can happen in the brain. Okay. So, what about the true impacts of insight? First off, insight is, in, is inherently a creative act. It's putting things together in a novel way. There are things that weren't there before. When the brain's at stillness, when that, well, we described this earlier this morning, the sort of boiling electrical dynamic pot has really slowed down. There's a chance to see the relatedness of one electrical resonance to another electrical resonance. To begin to see how in the A, B, C, D, E neuron sequence, that the C neuron gives rise to H, J, W, and Z, and how these co-occur and co-arise. And once that is seen in this quiet state, our memory, since we are doing this in a sentient aware condition, 
our memory will store that seeing and store it in many ways so deeply because it is, a, is, is, is in many ways it's such a profound insight and so different from our usual experience that we'll not forget this, that significant re- new relationship that the insight has shown us. And perhaps the most profound insights occur when the brain slows down enough and stabilizes enough so that one can really track that constructed nature of experience, the contact, feeling, craving story. Yeah, ignorance, contact, feeling, craving story, that whole 12-step wheel of samsara. We see behind the curtain and and really begin to discern kind of the unspeakable, because you can't really find the words to describe it, the outlines of the true reality behind all our constructions. So, in the great quiet and steadiness of singleness, Nikagata, the constructed empty nature of experience and and the constructed empty nature of the self can be seen. Behind it, that ineffable, unnameable true reality can can be perceived. As a Dharma teacher, Steve Armstrong said, like living in a valley surrounded by high mountains, then one day you're standing atop the tallest peak, seeing everything from an utterly fresh perspective. It's so clear and extraordinary there, yet your life is back in the valley. And so you come back. But that seeing changes you forever. So, insight can be kind of an all-pervading reset button on the brain. You know, Control-Alt-Delete, here we come. And maybe spiritual insight in real deep states is like any other insight in the states of access concentration or even just driving down the freeway when something occurs to you. But it has very special force because it lands on a brain that is in a state that is extraordinarily receptive and fertile. Which is why morality, sila, is such a foundation for practice. Because you really have to be in a state where you really have everybody's best intentions. In order for these, because these are so powerful, they they have the power to literally change your direction. And the direction may be for good or for evil. So if you do this in the context of a positive state, it will move you in a positive direction. So, flashes of the bana. Tenzin Palma. Can I tell a quick story? Yeah. I want to tell a quick story about uh, Tenzin Palma. Uh, who wrote a wonderful book I could not recommend more highly called Reflections on a Mountain Lake. Uh, she is a, an English woman who went to Tibet as a young woman and did a solitary retreat in a cave for 12 years and then another 12 years or so of retreat in different monasteries. So this is definitely somebody with some serious game. And <laughs> as my son said, <laughs> when he went on one of these teen retreats from Spirit Rock, he said, Dad, you know those Ajans have game. You know, Ajahn is an honorific, like a monk or something. Those <laughs> Ajahns have game. But anyway, um, she talked, to build on what Rick said, though, um, the prepared mind, uh, she tells the story that one night she was, uh, a storm had, had happened uh, in her cave, and 
in such a way in the springtime that all the snow landed on her and melted. So somehow it happened that she's in this cave in the middle of nowhere, whatever, 10, 15,000 feet. Nobody's around for miles. It's pitch black and she's surrounded in snow and she can't breathe and she might die. Okay, and she's in the middle of meditation because that's how she spent most of the hours in her day. And suddenly, woof, the snow has landed on her. And the way she describes the story is initially there was a kind of fear and then, then the thought came to her, what did you expect from samsara? Samsara being ordinary existence. What did you expect? Did you expect samsara to make you happy? And that simple thought, which she had heard a thousand times before, what do you expect? It's just samsara. That thought landed on a prepared mind. And in that moment, there was a complete opening for her. All her fear went away. All her sorrow went away. All her identification with what would happen to this particular body went away. And she had, in her own case, you know, a kind of awakening. Not necessarily. We've probably all had the experience that a very familiar thought, a prosaic thought, will land sometimes. But it lands on such a prepared state that it's like, you know, that one extra crystal that drops into the supersaturated solution that just tips it over into changing state forever after. So. Yeah, she survived. She actually wrote about it. You know, it melts. She got out of it. You know, there as a guy, or I don't know, maybe women too. I want to know those details. How? What? You know, what you do? And she got through. But the big point is, Tibetans, you know, have, Tibetans have a practice where they take icy sheets in the middle of winter, go out and sit in the middle of snow, dry the sheets and the snow for six feet around. Uh, you know, so maybe she had some serious game training. <laughs> what did you suspect from samsara? Yeah. A pilot light. Boom. But if, if you just see the quote here, it's really wonderful that she talks about this. It's quite Tibetan too. You know, many uh, brief awakenings, many times. Right. All right. That's one way to think about all this. And at the very end, notice how she closes her her very spacious quote. It's reminiscent of Shanti Deva's quote. You know, my view is as vast as the heavens, but my attention to the laws of karma which is to say to virtue. My attention to the laws of karma is as fine as a grain of barley flour. That's essentially what Tenzin's getting here. That we, we need to first develop the ability to regulate our body and speech so as to cause no conflict. And you might think about, in your own case, how relaxing contentiousness with those you live with, with those with whom you drive, Landlord, your in-laws, your politicians, relaxing contentiousness, still pursuing the good, still living from the best parts of yourself, but relaxing a contentiousness in the world. You know, how that might serve your own concentration. You know, the Buddhist phrase is the bliss of blamelessness. You know, that we're so um, just we don't have any we're not upset about how people are treating us. We're not worried if we've treated them badly. The bliss of blamelessness. That's a great aid to concentration. So you might think about that as well in terms of steadying your own mind. And there's a reference text for doing that on the road. I'd recommend Jack Cornfield's book. I think his title of the book probably says it all. After the Ecstasy, The Laundry. The cell phone is turned off.
Or the pager. Or the pager. Jeez. So, any Sorry. questions, discussion? So we'll do a few more minutes of questions, comments, discussion, then we'll do a brief meditation and close. All right? Comments, questions? Yes, please. Microphone? Thanks. It is on me. Red lights on. Hello? This is okay? I'm sorry. Sure. Yeah. This, is, this is a little bit back, but it's the, the rat story. What happened that you couldn't remember? I didn't quite get oh, it when you were telling me. The rat, as the rat was recalling the maze, the scientists gave the rat a chemical which inhibits protein synthesis. And what that means is that the nervous system at that time couldn't reestablish protein connections in the synapses and the circuits that remember the memory. That the inhibition of protein synthesis disrupted that circuit sufficiently that the rat was unable to remember the maze the next time it was presented. Um, that's a real interesting phenomenon because the wiring diagram is still there. But what is it about protein synthesis and the recalling of memory uh, that allows you to retain something? The basic part of that story and the, and the point of it is that, mem the, is that memory is an active process and that when memory is recalled, that's an active dynamic thing because it is then laid down and there's some key in the brain in how it's laid down that incorporates the condition in which it was recalled. So if I, rec if I recall an event right now, I will, when I put that thing that back down into memory, all of you are going to be there to some level because I'm recalling it at this moment with all of you present. And that if I am, you know, and this is obviously inhibiting protein synthesis completely is a very drastic thing to do. So I'm not going to let myself go through that. But it is, that it, that it is apparently inherently possible to, by having somebody recall a memory in particular context under particular kinds of treatment, to erase that memory. That's kind of amazing. So that's sort of what happens in EMDR too. I mean, there's a different Maybe. context and cognitions. Yeah. So it, the the flavor of it is different. When the flavor is different laid. when it is yeah. laid down, and that's also EMDR is done in the context of a therapist. It's done in the context of a positive emotional connection between client and therapist, a protected environment, safety, and so whatever is recalled is placed in there with that tone. Now it may be a terribly traumatic memory. And so the next time it comes up, it's still going to be a terribly traumatic memory. It's going to be a terribly traumatic memory with this little addition of the one time they were with the therapist and they recalled it and maybe it wasn't so bad. And so you put all of that around. You do that two, three, four, five hundred times and maybe that terribly traumatic memory is not held as such a trauma anymore. So every time you recall a memory, like you're saying, the state that you're in when you recall it gets woven into the memory itself yeah. the next time you recall it. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Yes, in the back. We will, by the way, definitely end on time. We'll actually try to end a few minutes early, before five. So stick around. Yes. Question, another question about memory. I often hear things when I come here to a teaching and I think, aha, you know, that really is important to me. And two days later, I can't remember it anymore. Okay. My question is, 
um, can you receive the benefit of an insight without actually remembering getting it? <laughs> Given the number of things I've forgotten in my life, I hope so. Um, I hope so too. <laughs> I, I would say to that, if I could quickly, that um, yes and no. I think on the one hand, um, you know, how can I put it? We've, I've certainly had the experience, probably most of us have, of realizing amazing things, writing them into our journal, and then a year or ten years later coming back over the journal, and it's as if it's fresh and still amazing again. All right? Uh, so we lose it on the one hand. On the other hand, who can remember everything? Right? If we did remember everything, we would have great difficulty. The brain deliberately doesn't remember everything because that would soak up storage capacity pretty quickly right. on the one hand. Second, you can help yourself remember things by uh, doing what every school teacher knows. Uh, make them multimodal, write it down, talk about it with somebody, put it into personal practice. Uh, think about the ways in which in the teachings uh, they were to be memorized and repeated again and again and again. We can help ourselves in those ways. Last, just because we no longer remember the core conceptualization, the languaging of it, right. doesn't mean that it's not represented in that basic insight or the state of being that the verbal insight opened up to us as. It doesn't mean that that state of being is not represented in terms of emotional structures in the brain or visual spatial structures in the brain as well. There's hope. One of the things that I, in my response to your question, that um, actually the serious part of my response, I've sat through a lot of Jack Cornfield talks at Spirit Rock. And Jack has a, has a way of starting by saying, it's not important that you remember what I say. Listen to the stories, listen to the essence behind the stories, and let that sink in. In a, in a way, if you think about it, and then, of course, obviously, if you sit through a lot of Jack Cornfield stories, pretty soon you've heard them ten times, and you're going, oh, my God, here we go. Then. <laughs> One more time. Uh, but that's another thing. But the, the, the essence of the stories seep in, and pretty soon that quality, as I was talk, talking to you a little bit, that quality begins to permeate your worldview. And so the next time a situation arises, you come at it with the emotional state of, of being informed by that worldview. So it may not be necessary to completely remember word by word by word by word by word that insight. Yeah. Thank you. It's encouraging to hear that. Right there. On cultivating um, equanimity, which is of greatest interest to me, I'm not sure if you had any suggestions. I think I missed it. Unless training the amygdala was, I don't think that was related to cultivating equanimity. Was On what it? again? Please. Training, training the amygdala. That's not. I, basically, I'm curious. How do I cultivate equanimity? I'm very eager to do that, and that's of greatest interest to me. I mean, everything is of interest to me, but cultivating equanimity is my number one <laughs> suggestions, basically, on how to do that. Okay. Sure. Rick and I'll go back and forth, and we'll just do it quickly, because we are going to do a whole day on that with Christina Feldman at Spirit Rock in May. And um, so I really come. encourage you to think about that. Uh, many ways. One is uh, train the parasympathetic wing of the nervous system. Boy, the parasympathetic mm -hmm. is our friend. The rest digest part of the nervous system. 
by stimulating it, you strengthen it. So doing more things that activate that kind of calm, happy, rest and digest mode is really, really good. And um, on our um, uh, website, the very first Train Your Brain class we did was on the parasympathetic wing of the nervous system. And there you'll find an article that essentially synthesizes all the stuff about the stress, fight or flight reaction, and the parasympathetic system and how to activate it. So that would be one. Two um, is insight. You know, there's nothing, there's no replacement for insight. No. Especially disenchantment. To realize that a lot of what we get excited about is, is sort of a big so what. And it leads to a lot of suffering. You know, this is a culture that really prizes slam, bam, thank you, ma'am, right? Lights, cameras, sex, drugs, you know, murder at seven. And, you know, there's a place to realize, like, whatever about that. So. The, uh, a couple of quick techniques in terms of the parasympathetic system. Exhalation. That's a parasympathetic stimulus. And another one, which is real fun. I'm not kidding. That, that's, also, that's also from the, from the train brain. That turns out to stimulate parasympathetic nervous system fibers. Made all of you relax and giggle, didn't it? Um, that, 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 yeah, and so, you know, I expect to see all of you on the 101 freeway in the next, you know, in the next six months going down the freeway. <laughs> Another thought in, ter- in terms of equanimity, and I'll share, it's an insight that, again, it happened to me, and it sort of gave me an... When I thought of it, when the equanimity was, was first taught to me, I thought of it as kind of like the still point in the turning world from the Eliot poem. You know, like the, the North Pole and the world is turning around it. And the image that came to me in that was being in the eye of a hurricane, you know, quiet in the eye. And so I held that as sort of my focus of, well, that was, that's what equanimity was like. And I did that for about five years, during which time my life went from a force one to a category two, to category three, to a category five clearing the ground level hurricane. I was wondering, so what the wrong with my imagery here? And then I realized in talking with, uh, with one of my teachers, I had the wrong idea. It's not that you're the still point in the world. The world is happening in this incredibly spacious emptiness which you inhabit. So the world is way down there. That little, little, little tiny blue dot. And all of the things about which you are in terrible turmoil are happening in one tiny, tiny, tiny little corner of that little blue dot circulating a, a, a small minor sun in a small arm two-thirds out of the way of a rather humdrum run-of-the-mill spiral galaxy among several hundred billion galaxies that are out there in a universe that's 14.2, 14.5 billion light years across. You have a right to be here. You are part of that universe. Those things are important, but they are that size. Knowing that, why should you struggle and care and hate? 
logically the mind fully agrees with what you just said 500% but the emotional and the heart wants you have to, to you have that. to work with that idea it's not you my communicating mind to mind and giving you a verbal construct is not the same as you taking yourself through what's actually called a big sky meditation where you expand your consciousness from the point of awareness seated on the zafu and let it expand to the size of your body, size of your room, size of the house, size of the of the block, size of the city, size of the of the county, size of the state, size of the country, and you let your consciousness in your mind, the image of what your consciousness is encompassing, expand out that size. That actually, it's a good exercise. It takes about 20 minutes to work through, so we're not going to do it today. But that that concept lets it sink in in that very quiet, centered, meditative space. There it has an emotional charge that allows it to have a, the potential to flower a little more fully. I'd say one last thing about equanimity practice um, is the second foundation of mindfulness. Pay attention to the feeling tone of experience. Mm-hmm. Right. Pay close attention to is it pleasant or unpleasant or neutral and what happens next? You know, that attention right there tends to cut the chain of dependent origination, which leads to you know craving, clinging, and suffering. Just paying attention to the pleasant, the unpleasant. For me, that was incredibly useful to start doing that. Okay. All right, maybe one last. Okay, how about up there? Great. Oh, we'll be last. Or Tony will be last. Somebody will be last. Now I feel like I have to say something important. Um, I'm one of these people who struggles a bit with meditation, but I do really well with yoga. And I'm just curious about, uh, you, you made a reference in a different context earlier today to cheating, uh, that it isn't cheating if you focus on different areas of your breath because um, you're still focusing on your breath. And I'm curious about, I can easily get kind of zoned out and in a concentrated state when I'm hovering with one foot in the air trying to balance for 60 seconds. Mm-hmm. The second that I think how great I'm doing is when I fall and that goes back to the narcissism we were talking about earlier but if I'm able to just maintain that focus uh, and not think about myself then I I can sort of naturally concentrate so my question is is that cheating uh, and or am I still getting the same benefits from the types of meditation that you're describing Uh, is my brain doing that same stuff if I don't have to work at it so much basically notice the lesson that you just gave. When I am in the moment and just with the posture, just with the stretch, I'm doing fine. As soon as I self, bam, on the floor. What an amazing insight right there. That's not cheating. That's the whole game. I think uh, the Buddha talked about bringing mindfulness into the four postures Rick alluded to earlier Mm. standing, sitting, lying and walking and um, I tell my wife honey I'm meditating (laughs) (laughs) lying but anyway um, and so that's that's the kind of of standing (laughs) you know there's mindfulness there Um, I just isn't it true don't we all have the inner knowing when we're BSing mm-hmm. ourselves and when we're not right. or you know, when or we all typically have a kind of inner knowing what's the next thing to really support you know 
I think a lot of how much my own philosophizing about practice is about what it's going to be like eight steps out rather than focusing on the next step in the progressive process you know, of cultivation mm-hmm. of the wholesome. Right. And um, so I think deep down inside us, we know uh, whether we actually should do more yoga, right? Or right. on the other hand, if we're using the fairly stimulating process of those physical activities as kind of a training wheel for our bicycle, and we'd be well served at least some of the time take the training wheels off. Mm-hmm. That, that would be the question. Okay, well, how about on that? You know, we'll do a little set, and then we're going to kind of close. And I don't know if there's any official close. What? Okay, Tony will have something in. So we'll just take a very brief meditation. And part of what we will do is offer the benefits of what's happened here to ourselves and our future selves, and those we know and love, but also to all beings. All right, so maybe just take a second to be with your own body and your own breathing and your own awareness right now. Taking a moment to notice the blossoming, the ripening of good things from this day in your mind and body and heart. Getting a sense, perhaps, of the ripple effects of your own good efforts today, rippling through your life and out through the people you see directly. thinking to yourself, may the fruits of this day be of benefit to everyone I know. perhaps sensing the ripple effects of the fruits of your efforts today and those of everyone else in this room.